If I walk into that house, I'm going to binge. I just can't go. My client Janice and I were talking on Skype, and she was telling me about her upcoming visit to her parents' house. Janice has made progress in the last year. Twelve months ago, she was on a keto intermittent fasting plan, but she was also binging on store-bought cake about once a week. These days, she eats regular meals, and she hasn't binged in months. But the last year has also been one with zero travel, and working from home on account of the pandemic, she's had ultimate control over her environment. Her parents' house, Janice told me, was a treasure trove of treat food. There would be cake or pie out on the countertop. They'd offer buttery popcorn with a movie at night, and they'd open a bottle of wine with every dinner. Janice felt like she couldn't stand being in that environment without caving. I proposed the idea that maybe she could stay at a hotel or a bed and breakfast during the five-day visit, but Janice said that option would cause her parents to be deeply hurt. She said they love hosting, and my mom would literally cry if she found out I was staying at a hotel. So stuck between a rock and a hard place, Janice was dreading the trip, but she felt like she had no option other than going. She did want to see her parents; it was the binges she was dreading. She could see herself standing in the kitchen in the dark, the light of the refrigerator revealing her working her way through baked goods, ice cream, potato chips. All her months without binging would go down the drain. She figured. And then, the strangest and least predictable thing happened. Janice got to her parents and discovered they no longer had baked goods out on the counter. Her dad's type two diabetes had begun to affect his eyesight last year. And that had motivated him to make some major switches. Now he had things like sugar-free popsicles and sugar-free Jello for desserts, since they didn't elevate his blood glucose. Janice's mom had never had much of a sweet tooth, and she still enjoyed her wine with dinner, but she didn't mind not keeping any sweets at home anymore. But it got stranger still. Janice told me it was like someone took over her body the first day she was there. She borrowed the car from her parents, drove to the store, and bought cupcakes, muffins, and other dessert foods from the bakery section. She then sat in the car and ate and ate and ate. She put her hands over her nose and mouth while telling me this, and her eyes got large, like she was equally baffled and horrified at her behavior. She said it was like I had already resigned that their home would screw me up, and I'd binge. But when their home wasn't actually a threat, I screwed myself up. I comforted Janice, and in a matter of days, she was back to her normal baseline of eating at home. But there was a really important lesson for her in this, both her and me, actually. And looking back, I missed something I should have made sure we talked about before she went on that trip. This is the Breaking Up with Binge Eating podcast, where every listen moves you one step closer to complete food freedom. Hosted by me, Georgie Fear, and my co-coach Mary Claire Brescia. When Janice had first told me about the planned trip to her parents' house, it was in despair over the binges she said she knew would happen there. I heard her say that, but in my mind, I thought, "Well, she doesn't have faith in herself, but I have faith in her." I bet she'll do better than she thinks. And I focused on reviewing the skills she had gained. 
In our session before she left, we talked about the ways she had learned to handle her emotions, how she had learned that she thrives best with regular sleep and wake times, and how she had learned to assert herself. She could ask that they have more vegetables and fruit on hand, so she could make the healthy meals she enjoyed. I encouraged her to remember, they're your parents and they love you. If you need to take an hour to yourself or you don't want to watch the movie that they're putting on, you can excuse yourself to have some quiet time and read. In reviewing all of these skills, though, I missed that Janice was eyeballs deep in a mental trap. She had fallen victim to her own fortune-telling. She said, if I go into that house, I am going to binge. Not, I'm worried what if I binge. It wasn't even a question. In her mind, there was certainty. Her plus that house equals binge. She was so certain of that fate that when forces actually turned against her, making it harder for her to binge, sugar-free jello wasn't that tempting, she said. She went out of her way to fulfill what seemed at that point like destiny. Janice's story shows how coming to the conclusion that things will go badly has a powerful impact on our behavior. It doesn't prepare us or bolster our defenses. It just makes us more likely to cause things to go badly. And then we say, see, I was right, confirming our negative view. In the last episode, I introduced the topic of cognitive distortions, in particular, fortune-telling, as well as its cousin, mind-reading. Both fortune-telling and mind-reading are varieties of jumping to conclusions. Fortune-telling is making a negative prediction about the future and believing it as if it were an established fact. Mind-reading is making a negative prediction about what someone else is thinking or feeling and not bothering to check. If you've been paying attention to your own thoughts, you might have noticed that you do one or both of these regularly. You might think, yeah, I typically expect things to go badly, but if I'm wrong and things turn out better than I expected, there's no harm done. However, research indicates there is harm done. A 2014 paper published in the journal Cognitive Therapy and Research found out that of all the types of cognitive distortions, and there's more than a dozen, fortune-telling was the only one uniquely associated with suicide attempts. Anticipating more negative events in the future almost perfectly overlapped with a rise in the feeling of hopelessness. When you feel hopeless, how do you act? If you're like most people, you find inaction is the natural response. It's no use, so you don't waste effort on a project you're hopeless about. If you feel hopeless about yourself, you don't put forth effort to help yourself. So fortune-telling and the closely linked sense of increased hopelessness ties a person's hands when it comes to taking consistent actions. And those actions that fall off when you feel hopeless include eating well, engaging in physical activity, and putting effort into practicing the skills you need to defeat binge eating or emotional eating. So if you want to stay motivated and bring your best effort to improving your eating choices or your fitness, your relationships, your career, really anything, it's valuable to fight back against your own fortune-telling thoughts. Before I move into exactly how we do that, I want to touch on mind reading. This cognitive distortion happens when we conclude that other people are thinking negatively about us, 
without appropriate evidence. Like fortune-telling, this tendency to jump to conclusions about other people's thoughts impacts our relationships and highly correlates with anxiety. Let's say you and I meet in the grocery store. We're both buying cereal, and you pull the same box off the shelf that I just tossed in my cart moments earlier. I say, I love the new flavor of this cereal, and you chime in, me too. Did you try the blueberry almond flavor yet? It's also really good. You smile politely and walk away. On the surface, this is a normal, friendly interaction. But if I'm a habitual mind reader, I can actually be harmed psychologically by this innocent little chat. That person seemed in a hurry to get away from me. Was I too weird? Do I smell bad? God, why did I open my mouth at all? I always sound like a dummy. I glue my eyes to the floor, finish my shopping, and spend the rest of my trip feeling even more self-conscious than before. I'm such a weirdo. Why do I talk to people in the cereal aisle? And that was just an interaction with a stranger. Imagine how difficult your daily job would be if every time your boss asked you to edit something, you think, they can't wait to get rid of me and hire someone better. Or if every time you went out to eat, you thought, everyone in this restaurant is noticing my acne and thinking I'm gross. How could you possibly enjoy being intimate with your partner if the whole time you're thinking, God, they must be so grossed out by my body? In short, mind reading is poison for relationships. It leads to us withdrawing avoiding connection, feeling anxious and self-critical. And guess what? We aren't much fun to be around when we're like that. Now that we've established that fortune-telling and mind-reading are actually harmful cognitive distortions, what do we do to retrain ourselves out of these patterns? First, recognizing it is half the battle. Once you can catch yourself and think, oops, I'm mind-reading again, or there I go, fortune-telling, you've already crossed the biggest barrier by acknowledging, hmm, this could be a processing error. It's important to note that making predictions or having expectations about the future is normal and healthy. Where it becomes a problem is when we believe that the negative outcome is destined or already set in stone, or to use one of my least favorite phrases, meant to be. When we firmly believe these negative forecasts, and then we don't consider all the other options. We are committing fortune-telling. It's also true that we can have a sense of someone's demeanor by their body language. We might be able to observe that someone's looking comfortable and relaxed, or that they seem sad and distressed. But these indicators don't tell you everything, and they aren't always genuine. Reading a person's body language does not tell you why the person is upset or in a hurry or seems distracted. The truth is, we cannot read the future, and we cannot read details of other people's thoughts. Yes, some things may be more probable than others, but there are almost always many, many possibilities, and it's best to stay open to them. Here's an example. As I step off my front porch, crunch, my ankle twists and I crumple in pain. There goes my whole summer, I think. I start to cry, not only for the pain, but because I have been planning hiking and biking trips with my friends, and all that just went up in smoke because now I'll be on crutches and in a cast for all the warm months. But did it all go up in smoke? All the info I have in this moment is that there's pain, and I heard a crunch. I don't actually know if my foot or ankle is broken or sprained, or if I just stepped on a branch and landed on it oddly. 
I'm putting myself through all sorts of misery, jumping to conclusions about what I'm losing out on months ahead of now, and I might be fine in a number of hours. You see how fortune-telling can lead to despair? A wise response to my own barrage of doomsday thinking would be, hang on, Georgie, we don't know what happened yet. Let me get inside, let me put some ice on it, and let's just see what happens over the next few minutes. Some things hurt really, really badly, but aren't actually severe injuries. It might be a sprain, or a strain, or maybe just a bruise. If I need to get it checked by a doctor, Roland will give me a drive to the ER, and they'll x-ray it, and we'll find out. I don't have to jump to conclusions about what is going to happen months from now about my hiking and biking trip. Let me just focus on tonight and get inside. I don't know what's happening yet. Let's say I'm at a job interview, and I notice one of the interviewers suddenly gets a stern look on his face as I'm talking. I must have said something foolish or that he didn't like, and so now I'm getting nervous. My fluid, easy manner is now rigid and scared because I'm second-guessing every word, not knowing what it was that I said wrong. My self-consciousness is making me perform worse in the interview. Maybe I'm going to lose out on this job because my nervousness gives the impression I'm easily agitated. When all along, the interviewer's stern look could have had nothing to do with me. Maybe he was trying to hold in a fart or resist picking his wedgie. It's mind-reading if I start concluding that a look must be a negative reaction to me and what I'm saying. Here's another example, perhaps one that hits closer to home. You start putting into place some of the exercises I recommend in this podcast. Everything goes well for a week, and then you have a slip. This always happens, you tell yourself. I always do well for a week, but that's the max I can ever stick to something. Starting tomorrow, I'll be really successful and good, but in seven days, I know I'm going to do this all over again. This type of fortune-telling is sneaky, because we're using a past pattern to extrapolate what will happen in the future. It feels like we have data. That should make our conclusion a logical one, right? Wrong. It's wise to take into account a past pattern of activity. But if you assume that's how things will inevitably continue in your life, you are robbing yourself of what is possibly the most important capacity you have, the capacity to change and grow. The past is indeed a good predictor of the future if all the players and conditions remain unchanged. If I mix ingredients in a pot, I simmer it for 40 minutes, then it becomes lentil soup. I can remember that. Next week or next year, if I want some lentil soup, I can mix the same ingredients in a pot and cook it for the same amount of time. It's reasonable to expect I'll pretty much get the same soup. But you are changing all the time. If you're trying new methods, new skills, there's every possibility that things could go in a fantastically new and different direction. This is where Janice fell short. If she had recognized that she was not the same person who had binged at her parents' house so many times before, she might have been open to the idea that things could be really different on this trip. And she could have focused more on making those possibilities that she desired come into reality. So, in line with the title of this podcast, I want you to think about possibilities. Whenever you notice your mind reading or fortune telling, think possibilities. Remind yourself anything can happen. You might not have all the facts right now. In fact, 
You probably don't. The future is not determined yet. While there's the possibility that things will fall through or that you'll be rejected by certain people, there's also the possibility that things are going to unfold into far more beautiful a picture than you even imagined. And you never know who might be thinking how impressive, unique, and wonderful you are. After all, you're here listening to a podcast in your spare time about how to change and grow into the person you want to be, which makes you pretty awesome in my book. 